Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 165. Are you getting the most out of your Postgres database? What features could you leverage to improve your Python project? This week on the show, Craig Kirsteins from Crunchy Data is here to discuss getting the most out of Postgres. Craig shares his years of Postgres SQL expertise with advice on getting more from the platform. We talk about rich data types for describing ranges, geospatial data, and JSON. Craig shares tools for accessing performance statistics from the command line and how to optimize your terminal settings for SQL searches. He discusses Postgres extensions for customizing the database to your needs. Craig also provides multiple resources for learning more and an online tool for practicing within a playground environment. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks, glad to be here. Yeah, I'm interested in talking to you. I mentioned in some of the emails back and forth that I have a lot of background in doing SQL stuff in the past. And it's kind of interesting because I didn't really have a, a lot of deep access to doing kind of more advanced stuff in SQL. But I, I'm i intrigued to talk to you about Postgres because I feel like, and this is something we kind of talked about offline just briefly, it's something that a lot of developers in the Python world know about, but maybe don't know why they should be using it, what are the advantages of using a tool like this. And so I wanted to dive into the Postgres and SQL with you. Yeah, that sounds super exciting. Yeah, cool. I mentioned to you that our audience is really kind of geared toward beginners and intermediate developers. And very often those kind of people are making projects and want to be able to showcase their skills by standing something up and showing, you know, like a, an application running and, and data is always a big part of that. And what are some of the reasons people would want to look at Postgres? Yeah, I think, you know, we were talking about this a little bit beforehand. And, you know, I think in the, the Python world, if you ask people say, you know, we use Postgres if you need the database, right? And we, yeah, you know, at, at risk of a huge detour, like we as developers, like we, we think we're super practical and like well-reasoned in all of our decisions right like <laughs> yeah at the, at the risk of as we start like alienating the entire audience like to me like i i used to work at heroku right was a very early product manager there before they were multi-platform multi-language and i got there and i ended up launching the python support and i remember that you know all the python developers at the time were kind of jealous of this heroku platform thing because it was so easy to deploy yep and it's kind of like well you know like Ruby and Python, it was interesting because this, there's this kind of like, oh, I'm a Python fan. I'm a Ruby fan. And Ruby's so much better. And it's like, they're really the same language. Like, I, I know someone's out there going to be like, now here's the 23 <laughs> ways. They're completely different. Sure. But, I mean, they both have actually amazing communities. I mean, when you look at them, they are more similar languages than they are different. And we're, we're so well-reasoned and, hey, I pick Python because of this. And it's so much better. And yet everyone in the Python world say Postgres, right? If you, you, 
you throw a rock and someone's going to say what database is going to be Postgres. And I was at a, a conference, this is years ago, five or six years ago. And at one of the speakers dinners, you know, they were talking about how as developers, we, we, we have these like things that are just canon gospel. And like, we have to, like, we believe in them so strongly, but it's really, we're just a bandwagon fan. Right. And, and the, the speaker was like, take for example, Postgres. I don't know why I should use it. I mean, if you ask me, I, of course I say Postgres and you're crazy if you don't use it, but I can't actually tell you <laughs> why. Yeah. And a lot of the uh, the audience knew me or the, the rest of the table knew me and just got like, it was very funny. The table just got quiet and like five people just tur- like turned around and stared at me. And I just rattled off a list of reasons. Right. And so, you know, I think it is a really good database and it is the right choice. Right. And if you want to hang up, turn off the podcast in 60 seconds, like it's transactional DDL, right? It's really rich data types. It's uh, rich indexing types, right? It it goes outside basic relational. It's full text search. It's one of the richest geospatial databases in the world, right? It competes head to head with like Esri, Esri, which is a expensive proprietary database. You know, rich JSON support extensions, which completely change what it can do, right? There's a laundry list of, of reasons. So like, if you want to, you know, just end the, the podcast now, <laughs> right. great, you got the laundry list. But like, we can drill into a lot of those. I think it's it's really fascinating because it Postgres for the longest time was not cool and sexy. It was reliable. It did the thing that was safe for your data, which I know that seems crazy as a, a database, right? To like, be reliable and safe for your data. But that wasn't always the choice other databases made. And it started there and it focused on that. And then it layered in these sexy things like JSON later that as a developer, you can really take advantage of. And that's where for beginners, right? I, I think it's it's good to embrace, right? I, I talked to so many application developers that were like, I'll learn this new algorithm or that one, but they try to stay at arm's length from their database. For some reason, it seems scarier and more intimidating, right? Like, it seems easier to... Or a special Yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but we we shy away from it. And it's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm interested in learning more. And then I'll like show you a SQL query. And it's like, well, let's not go crazy. Like, I didn't actually mean like SQL. That's, that's next level. So <laughs> yeah, I don't think it has to be that scary. So there's a lot of just one, knowing what's in the box, right? Like, well, what is transactional DDL, right? And how have I leveraged it? And and what's that mean? And then, you know, where where do you go for resources when you want to dig in, right? And how do you go from that, the most basic level of using Postgres with your ORM to now I'm taking advantage of this Postgres-specific thing in my ORM, right? Something like range types, which you can do. And don't treat the database like a dumb store. Say, what can Postgres do? Now, how can I leverage it? It's definitely a, a thing that I think I'm, seeing a little bit of a resurgence in, in like the, the development world. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I feel like from a tutorial standpoint, if you ever see Postgres mentioned, it's literally, oh, just stand this up and, and connect to it. <laughs> and that's about it. And so it's probably just doing very simple RD, RBDFs, you know, just relational database stuff on it and not really leveraging things, you know, beyond what maybe even a simpler database can do, which I think is really interesting. So I do want to dig into that. What I wanted to ask briefly is you alluded to a lot of these things kind of adding uh, or kind of coming to the platform. If you could give me like a 
just a super abbreviated timeline, are these things that have been added in the last 10 years or like, you know, where have a lot of these things come, come on board? Um, is it part of like the community also uh, coming to, to help develop that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, uh, in the last 10 years, Postgres started to be viewed as, as sexier, right? Okay. It's probably in the last 15 years that it really started to, I think, mature to that usable standpoint, right? That that 15 to 10 year ago range, there are a lot of kind of foundational pieces that really advanced it as a database. It's never been a, a bad database, but 15 years ago, it was pretty hard to work with. It wasn't nearly as user-friendly, easy to install, easy to manage, administer, all of that. And and it's still a different world today, right? Like, we we don't manage our databases. Like, we, we usually trust a managed service to do that for us, right? Like, that's yeah. not as common as it was 10 years ago, which makes it a little more accessible broadly. And that's not just a Postgres thing. That's the same with, with MySQL and, and Mongo and everything else, right? You're just as likely to run... Atlas as you are, you know, manage it yourself. And I mean, for me, that's what I've been doing for the last 12, 13, 14 years, right? Back in the early days of Heroku and at Citus Data and now at Crunchy running like Crunchy Bridge. Like, yeah, I mean, users don't want to manage their database. Doesn't mean you can't appreciate it and enjoy it. And I think it was in that last 10 years or so that we got JSON support starting around Postgres 9, I forget it was 90, for a series of years there, Postgres every year got a new index type. Like first Postgres had, like if you if you got a degree in CS, right, and the first index type you learned about was a B-tree index, right? And if not, you can go look up what a B-tree is, kind of like the foundational index that every database gets. Then Postgres added in like a gen index, which is a generalized inverted index. Really, really useful when you have like multiple values in a single column. So if you think about like arrays or like JSON, Right. Right. Really, really useful index for that type of data. Then it got uh, just indexes, which is a generalized search tree useful for like shapes and full text search type things where you have like values that kind of span not within the same column, but different rows. Right. If you think about like, well, is a point inside this shape or this shape? Well, it can be inside both of these rows because it's a point inside a shape. Right. Then it got, uh, let's see, space partition gist and Bren indexes. And it, so, kind of crazy that it's like, wait, here's a whole new index type just showing up in Postgres each year, right? So really over the last 10 years, it's gotten really rich, which is in terms of feature sets, kind of that, is it okay to call a database sexy? Like, I don't, I don't know that databases (laughs) can be sexy, but, but that theme, right? It's, it's like, oh, actually, yeah, now Postgres is cool and sexy really in this last 10 year timeframe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it sounds like a lot of kind of core development happening there and and not sort of standing still, you know, from that standpoint. One of the things you mentioned that I'm kind of intrigued by is this idea of, you mentioned the different types of indexes, but one of the key elements that going through the documentation is seeing we have all these unique types of data types and I didn't get a chance to kind of dig through them, but like what would be examples of those that would be advantageous to like a Python developer, you know, why going beyond sort of simple data types that they might know? Yeah. So I think there's, uh, man, like it's, that's like the perfect softball. I'm so excited about, like, I'm excited to talk about data types. Like what, who, my, my, I am too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like we talk about them often on the show and in other, 
other way is, you know, because it, it's all about communicating back and forth between, you know, these systems. And typing is something that is kind of hard for a lot of Python developers. They really like the dy- dynamic part of Python, but it's like when you talk about storing things and putting things away, it's kind of critical to have types. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, I'll get it out now so that I'm, you know, uh, my, my partner and I have a, a date night tonight so that I'm not sitting there talking about types then. Yeah. So, like, let, let me find like just one or two examples, right? Like range types in Postgres are a type that is a, a from and a to. And so, why would you store that as a range type in a, a database? If you think about like you're doing a, you know, college scheduling application, right? Well, yeah, you could build all this logic in Python to say, well, make sure I'm not enrolled in two classes that overlap time-wise, right? Or what if we put a constraint on the data that says we can only have 30 students in this class at this time, right? Range types are enforced at the database level. So you could have them, you know, a start and a finish, and you can have like database constraints that enforce that. And so I, I, it's been a while since I've been in college, but I totally remember like you would be there at you know, 2 p.m. when your slot to open because you have this many credits open because you, you don't want the 8 a.m. class on Friday, right? Like you, you want like <laughs> If possible, yeah. And so you got 25 people or you know, 2,000 people trying to sign up for this one class and it's boom, 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 right? And which request gets in to the database? And what, so how do you, you've only got 30 seats. How do you actually enforce that at a database level? And at high volume systems like that, that matters, right? And the fact that you have a data type in Postgres that is this range type, which it can be from, you know, time or it can be like numbers. It's a range of from and to all stored within one. It's not two different columns, right? Yeah. It's not two different, you know, records on your model. It's one data type that you can have the database constraints that match it. And now what I really love, right, is how the Python world has started to embrace this. It was probably... I think it was like 10 years ago, kind of like you look at Django and Django's like, nope, we have like five types and they're the same across databases. But now, you know, SQL Alchemy like really was good at this early on of like, all right, I'm going to have this specific thing for this specific database driver. Django came a little bit later, but definitely does it now where it's like, oh, now we've got range types and now we've got a JSON type and now we've got this type because it exists in Postgres and we really want to leverage it. Nice. Um, Range types are one of those ones that doesn't get as much attention. JSON is the one gets quite a bit of attention. Like JSON and Postgres is not a surprise. It's awesome. There's two types. It's it's kind of funny. There's a JSON type that came back in, I think it was Postgres 9.2. Um, it's either 9.2 or 9.4 and then 9.4 or 9.6. But I think it was 9.2 that we got JSON. And we made a lot of noise about it. We marketed it like, look, Postgres is now a NoSQL database, right? Because it was the, the heyday of Mongo. Sure. We kind of cheated. It was it was like we validated that it was JSON and then we threw it in the text field under the covers. Hmm. Like, was it wasn't real JSON. There was no compression of it. So two years later, we got actual JSON, which the field type in Postgres is JSON B. Uh, one of my colleagues jokes that the B stands for better. Um, <laughs> it's actually binary. Um, I like the I like better a lot, you know. Well, better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's like a binary representation of JSON on disk, and you with, as I mentioned a little bit ago, with gin indexes. Now you can index on like every key and value. You add one index, and now that's like a fully indexed JSON document inside this boring old relational database with columns and rows, right? So it's, 
I, I tend to these days think of Postgres as more and more of a platform, but like range types, JSONB, probably for most of you out there listening, you're not sitting there writing raw SQL and raw migrations, right? You're like, all right, this is what my ORM gave me. So like, check out the docs. I'm like, okay, where's the Postgres specific section of the ORM docs? Because there is one. Like in SQL Alchemy and Django, like you're using Postgres, go look at this cool thing that's probably there under the Postgres section of the docs. To take advantage of it. That's so wild to me too, like coming from, I don't know, I, I worked I worked at a couple different banks and one of the banks I was working with, it was like more mortgage data. And I got real used to the, you know, tying all this data together and learning how to do that between all these separate tables. So the idea of like having this like big blob of JSON stuff just like in a single <laughs> field is like kind of wild to me. But that is kind of that that newer style of of database storage, right? And I kind of try try to think of like implementations of that. Or yeah, no, I think it's it's like okay, like should I do this or not, right? And a lot of people will ask me, they're like, okay, Craig, you you like databases, you're good at databases. So like you're a purist and you don't use JSON, right? And it's like, it's funny for the last 15 years, everywhere I worked back to Heroku and, and at Crunchy, like JSON was in there from day one. Like we we run a managed database service, right? Like sure. you want Postgres to run really well, we do that for you. And so you would think we have a good schema and good design and there's JSON in there. And so like our, um, our health checks, when we monitor databases, go out and it has all these, what we call like feelings. Like it goes and feels the databases to see how they're doing, right? <laughs> like it's kind of like the doctor checking, like, how are you doing health-wise? Like, does this hurt? Like, you know, yeah, yeah. like how's your reflexes, like banging your knee, that sort of thing. And so- I love the new question that they always ask you is like, um, um, have you had dark thoughts lately? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's like, we're, we're asking all that of this server, right? right. And we're pulling it back in JSON because like, there's different sets of feelings and types, right? And we don't want to have to go and like create a new table for every type of feeling we're going to do. It's just like, oh, is it this type? Yeah, great. And then we want to, you know, there's certain things that always exist, right? Like a server ID and the timestamp of when we, you know, you know, when the checkup was and the customer ID of it. Like, sure, those are like separate columns, but this stuff that's like high moving, high changing, we may remove some of it, but we may add some of it, right? It, it's right there in, in a JSON column for us and it works really, really well. And I think not being too dogmatic on, oh, it has to work this way or that way, like it it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm wondering like, what would be an example of like, you know, just off the top of your head, like where, you know, say somebody has a Django setup going and they need that kind of feel, like what, what would be in it that would be that varied to have, like, you know, diff different chunks of JSON? You know, like metrics or events are super common. Okay. Right. If you're do if you're, if you're building an, an app, like, uh, you know, I was on a call with one of our customers about a month ago who uh, has like a, a calendar scheduling application. Right. And they, they were looking at their own internal metrics and events and they wanted to kind of build out like a, okay, user clicked on this and opened it up, but they the person didn't confirm, right? If I'm sending you like a Calendly type link or a Savvy Cal type link, and I want to know, did you schedule or what did you click on? Or where did you get stuck, right? Oh, it was the time zone thing that you didn't find or great. Like there's so many metrics that like, if you think about every metric you want to throw at a, a wall and make that a different type and a join table, like you're kind of, you're just going to 
kill yourself on velocity, right? Yeah. Um, metrics and events as JSON are super, super common. Okay. Um, an interesting call out, uh, if you want to have like, like API traffic log data, like if you want to record the API log event so that you could replay it, my recommendation, don't do that as a JSONB, do that as a JSON, that plain text dumb one, because then we don't have to go any back and forth in compression or indexing, right? It's like, hey, if you just want to persist JSON exactly as it was, preserve the white space and everything, use that JSON, you're like not the binary version. Otherwise, if you're querying on this indexing or that sort of thing, you usually want to use the binary one. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It covers how to create interactive geographic visualizations that you can share as a website. The course is based on a RealPython tutorial by previous guest, Martin Royce. It's titled Creating Web Maps from Your Data with Python Folium, and it's presented by video instructor Kimberly Fessel. And she shows you how to create an interactive map using Folium and save it as an HTML file, how to choose from different web map tiles, how to anchor your map to a specific geolocation, and bind data to a GeoJSON layer to create a choropleth map, and then how to style that choropleth map. She also shows you how to add points of interest and other features. Learning how to build interactive visualizations is a worthy investment of your time. And sharing standalone web pages is a great way to get your users to understand and dig into the data. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, this course is broken into easily consumable sections. Each lesson has a transcript, including closed captions. And you'll have access to code samples for the techniques shown. In this case, a complete interactive Jupyter Notebook. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. One of the other things that was mentioned is um, GIS being used in, in the platform. What are some of the things happening there? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I don't know that world as deeply. Like one of my colleagues is like the primary contributor and maintainer of post GIS. And it's, I, I think I can make the statement, it's the world's most advanced open source geospatial database. I think toe to toe, like post GIS goes toe to toe with Oracle and, and even in some cases Esri um, in terms of geospatial. Now, so Postgres has this notion of extensions and it's kind of what it sounds like. You can extend the Postgres, right? And it was built this way really back from the early, early days. So a little bit of history. Postgres, its name means post-ingress. And so ingress is one of the oldest, earliest relational databases that exist. Okay. And there are kind of two lineages of databases that exist. There's the ingress tree, and I'm blanking on the other tree right now at the moment. But like SQL Server, Oracle, each come from these same trees, right? And so does Postgres. And Postgres's name means post-ingress, which came out of UC Berkeley. And so, you know, Michael Stonebreaker, who helped create it, won a Turing Award for creating, you know, largely Postgres, but a lot of his contributions, built it with this extensibility idea in mind from day one, that he wanted it to be an extensible database. This was completely new. And so down in Postgres, there's these deep, low-level hooks that someone can come in and say, you know what, I want select star from foo to not actually hit foo i wanted to you know go and hit a mongo database or to go and hit redis right and so there's these low level hooks that you can go and write like a 
they see extension for Postgres and say, all right, load this up into Postgres, and it completely changes the behavior. Like you can add new data types, you can add new indexes, you can change how the query planner works. You can add time series, you can add compression, like everything under the sun is possible based on how complex you make it. And so uh, PostGIS is an extension. It's not in the core of Postgres. Okay. It's an extension, probably one of the most advanced extensions out there. It adds new data types, it adds new operators. It basically transforms it into this whole world of geospatial stuff. Yeah, okay. And now I think what's fascinating is like in the Django world, like GeoDjango is really great and exciting and kind of moves at this parallel pace. If you talk to a lot of the core Django developers, they're like, yeah, GeoDjango is cool, but it kind of does its own thing. And it's the same with the, like, they talk and they interact, but like the GeoDjango developers aren't like, oh yeah, I, you know, I work on core Django all the time and this and that. They kind of work on GeoDjango. And PostGIS is interesting because it has this like parallel path of people that know each other and hang out, but they're kind of parallel, like related, but not the exact same thing by the exact same people. So if you're doing anything geospatial, like take a look, even without PostGIS, there's basic geospatial stuff of like points and like earth distance. Earth distance is another extension. That's not the full PostGIS, okay. but really basic kind of computing distance between two points within Postgres. So extensions seem to be like one of the unique things that you're you're also kind of mentioning is like, you know, people can kind of leverage What's the process like to add an extension? I mean, not create it, but like if you want to add it to the database that you've stood up. Yeah, so it, it kind of depends, right? Um, if you're running the database, so there's a few layers of extensions. I'll try to make it as clear as possible because it's a little multifaceted. Okay. So Postgres ships with a number of extensions and they like contrib, right? Kind of think of it as like, uh, it's kind of like the standard library. Like you don't have to use it, but it's there, right? Okay. And so to enable it, you just run create extension. PG stat statements is one that's super useful. Like, hands down, most singly useful extension ever for Postgres. If you're not familiar with it, you take a look at it. If you're not, you don't have it turned on in your database, you're running Postgres, you should enable it. It basically like records every query that runs against your database and more or less like parameterizes it. Like if I run a select star from users where email equals, you know, Craig, right? Yeah. Or where user equals Chris, it's going to replace that where equals whatever with a where equals question mark and say, well, you've run this like looking for a user email twice, right? And on average, it took this many seconds. And on the max, it took min this many seconds. And it read this many blocks from memory and it dirtied this many pages and all that sort of stuff, which you know, and a production application in six months when it's like, hey, where's my database spending all this time? What are my horribly performing queries? Well, this one query has been executed a million times. And on average, it takes 100 milliseconds. And as someone that, you know, knows Postgres, it's like, well, 100 milliseconds is for a quick lookup. It's kind of high. Huh. I don't have an index there. Maybe I should. And now I can go and bring that 100 milliseconds down to one millisecond. And now that's fine for one query, but I've run this a million times. Now I just basically gave, you know, how much time back to my database in aggregate, right? So immensely useful for performance, debugging, and tuning of your Postgres database. Like, don't have it enabled. Just go and take a look at PG stat statements and enable it. It's in the contrib. And so, like, all you have to do to enable it is create extension PG stat statements. Okay. 
And then that's something that you can, that it reports to you as a, as a stats. Like how, how are you it's, deciding to make yeah. these indexes? So it's then recording all these stats into this catalog table that you can go and query. Okay. And if you go and look at, you know, you can, you can Google kind of PG stat statements or understanding PG stat statements or understanding Postgres performance. You search for understanding Postgres performance, you probably wind up on a blog post I wrote at some point. <laughs> yeah. Maybe one from 10 years ago, maybe one from two years ago that kind of walks through step by step of that, right? Okay. But basically, that's then sitting inside your database right alongside the rest of your data that you can go query. And, you know, for the day that you need it, it's really useful. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, performance data just... Uh... And so Postgres has, I want to say it's like 17 or 20 contrib extensions that are just there for you. Now, if you're running Postgres yourself and you're managing it yourself, you can go and you've got to check out the code from GitHub or go get it upstream from a package, you know, a Debian package and the, the Postgres packages and all that. And you can apt get install, yum install the extension, uh, and then go create extension, right? You've got to put it in the right place if you're running and managing it yourself. If you're on a managed service provider, right, like a Crunchy Bridge, like an RDS, like an Azure, you're you're generally limited to whatever that service provider has available. We're doing some interesting exploration where on Crunchy you could maybe bring your own extension. I'm a huge fan of extensions, so whatever I can do to support more of them in the world. We we add support for a new extension usually every two weeks. I think some of the most recent ones are like Hyperlog Log, which is it's it's a it's based on a white paper out of Google. I think if you read what it is, it's like uh, K minimum value combined with like stochastic harmonic averaging. Like I've read the paper and I'm like, I'm uh, cool. I'm glad I'm not in academia for algorithms because I couldn't <laughs> keep up. Right. But it's like probabilistic uniques. It's like insert this unique viewer by IP in here. And it compresses it down into like a single record. And so you could say like Wednesday had 150 uniques and Thursday had 175 uniques. But then you could join Wednesday and Thursday and learn that you had 205 uniques. Hmm. And it's like, well, that doesn't work by adding 150 and 175 and dividing. Like, how does that work? Really crazy and awesome, like math under the covers. The really useful practical application of that is if you're doing like think about building like a google analytics site yeah right where uniques is close enough it's like 99 percent accurate but google analytics is not running a select count star to get exact uniques across those days for you right it's doing this these advanced sampling algorithms so and then you know if your service provider supports it then the process is create extension hyperlog log or whichever okay so like that's just something you just got to check to see if they pr provide a certain subset of these extensions and and some of the service providers are going to provide more of them or less of them, depending on, you know, as they get pushed out. Exactly. And if they don't support it, you know, go ask your service provider, right? Or go check around at service providers. I mean, the, the most recent one that made a bunch of waves was PG Vector, which is like a vector store inside Postgres. And I was shocked that I think all the major cloud providers, you know, support it. Like we supported it really quickly. And then even Amazon and Microsoft have come along and now support it, which usually they're they're a good bit slower and, and move on a, a slower cadence. But PG Vector has definitely made some waves that a lot of the community is pretty excited about it. Nice. I guess we could kind of dig into a little bit more of the, the Python side of it. What sort of features 
can a Python developer take advantage of? You mentioned some of it as far as like, uh, you know, make sure you're looking in your Django documentation as far as uh, its ORM and, and its data types. What, what's some more advice in, in along those lines? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll echo that piece again, right? Like, okay. take a look at the data types. That's a big one. You know, the other thing I would say is both the Django ORM and in SQL Alchemy, I'm a, personally, if you ask between the two, I'm a big, big fan of SQL Alchemy. I think it's a really solid ORM. Don't be afraid to break out of the ORM and write some raw SQL. Like, the ORMs make this easier and easier, you know, as time goes on, where, you know, it's not frowned upon, right? Like there's used to be there were like two extremes where it's like, all right, I'm not using an ORM. I'm going to write everything in raw SQL. And and the other side that is, well, I start with the ORM and I don't really want to have to learn SQL. So why would I ever write a SQL query? And the ORM should be smart, right? Like there's a lot of smart people working on it. And SQL is a language for querying data and it's really, really good at it. Right. And if you find yourself kind of creating a report, right? Or doing more manipulation, like drop into raw SQL. Like your ORM gives you a hook for it. Look at the Django ORM on how to write and execute a raw query and and then go ahead and write it. Now, some good advice, I think for, or, you know, uh, I, I might get some debate on this, but at least, you know, some advice that I would give for writing raw SQL is try to think about it like you think about your Python code. Like docu- document your SQL. Like, you can write SQL that looks really legible and clear and lean. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's one of the things I really loved about SQL when I, I started to learn it is that, you know, not unlike Python, which I learned after, I you can read it out loud and it really kind of makes sense, you know, as long as you're organizing it properly. And I think you gave the advice of in one of the talks you had there of use the white space, <laughs> take advantage of this to, to organize it, to, to make it legible in the same way that, you know, things are indented inside of Python. Not a requirement of SQL, but um, definitely makes it more readable. Yeah, I mean, abs- uh, I think you're, you're lucky. I think you got exposed to, like, the not what most people get exposed to in terms of SQL, of, like, good, legible SQL. Like, that's not always the default. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people look at someone else's SQL and they're like, oh my goodness, what's going on, right? So I think you got lucky with your early experience. But yeah, that's exactly like leverage the white space, you know, common table expressions. So this notion of like a with clause. So where you say like with, you know, open parentheses and start to write the SQL and you basically create like an inline view. So you can, hey, I'm going to write this small query and then the next, you know, after I write it, I'm going to reference it down below. And so you can take this thing, and that's 50 lines of SQL. You have these building blocks, right? Where I'm going to join just two tables. And then I'm going to go back and join another one later on against this kind of like temporary view. Yeah. And, you know, spot on on like the white space. Like I align, you know, my, I, I start with my select and then I align my columns to like be on the same line, right? So that's like seven spaces of indentation for the next one, right? Don't put them all on one line, space it out. And then you do the from and, you know, put the tables on a different line and where they're, you know, five spaces before them. And then my my where and my ands, I'll do like a, a where clause, right? Where email equals whatever. And then I'll do the next line and I'll actually do two spaces before my ands so that the condition like aligns really cleanly. And if I want to just leave it, right? I just highlight that line and delete it. So 
there's there's a couple I think of blog posts I've written on like you know how I write SQL right and writing better SQL like common table expressions, white space, and then don't be afraid to do inline comments. At the end of a, a line, you can do two dashes. That's a comment in SQL. Yeah. So you could comment every single line really really cleanly. If you start to write SQL and think about it the same way you write Python code, when someone comes to it, they have a completely different appreciation for it of like, whoa, I've never seen SQL this way. I think that's pretty pretty uncommon that people actually do a good job of documenting SQL and clean formatting of it. Yeah, it, I mean, the idea very often in Python is you're exploring and learning and you know, even just kind of creating something is the idea of, hey, maybe I, I comment out this line. And it's kind of a similar thing that you can do if you format it properly in SQL also. You could actually comment out, you know, this this little section and say, well, what what if without this parameter? So I, I think that's really great advice. I also like, I didn't use this very much, but um, I could totally appreciate it when you were saying it, the idea of creating these expressions beforehand to like kind of have reusable chunks of queries, if you will, later on, or at least it maybe, you know, if you've named them properly, they make sense. Like, you know, you've set up a, a query that's grabbing all of, you know, all of these employees based upon some kind of parameter. And you can say this set of employees then later on in your later queries, which I think is really nice. Yeah. I mean, some of the, the, the true, you know, Postgres DBA peers and experts will say, well, that's an optimization boundary. It's not going to be the most performant thing. And, you know, at a time that was true, it's becoming less true. But I mean, to me, kind of, you know, when I'm writing this big old report, that's going to run for a minute anyway, right? That's got right. five different tables and aggregations and like readability and the ability to understand it is way more important than shaving, you know, five milliseconds off this query is going to take one second, right? Sure. Yeah, that premature optimization versus like understanding <laughs> um, can be kind of crucial. Yeah, absolutely. Understanding and and getting it right. Like I think that's like, oh, you think it's doing this, but you miss some step because you're trying to be complicated. So I think it's, yeah, the like understanding it is spot on. Yeah. You were showing off some tools. Again, this is kind of us moving away from Python again, but I think that's okay because so much of if you're going to be working with data and working with the database, sometimes taking the Python out of the equation and just looking at the database, it's kind of nice to be able to just go in and just do like, for me, again, I have the background of doing some SQL stuff, but it can be really kind of handy to like, you know, what is actually stored there? And you were showing off some some tools and I think PSQL is the one of the main ones that you were using. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I don't think it's so much going away from the Python. I think it's if you're not too scared of the the tools, right, and like embrace it a little bit, then then you have this open mind and it's not so scary, right? And so PSQL is like the the CLI editor that comes with Postgres, like the command line interface that you can just PSQL and connect to your database. Okay. And the biggest thing that I do to make it more usable. So most developers, like we're we're in a terminal window at some point, right? Like you have a like a bash like profile or like what's your sh what's your personal shell? Um, I'm using ZSH right now on a Mac. Okay, did you, did you like go crazy with your like GSHRC or did it like or did you just use oh my OMG GSH? I kind of have 
kept most things really vanilla because I do so many tutorials where I, I want it to look not okay. super customized, okay. where that becomes the whole questions and comments. <laughs> so, but <laughs> sure, I, I, I know like, oh, my posh and all these other kind of crazy things are like, it becomes like really interesting. But yeah, please keep going on that. <laughs> okay, cool. So yeah, like you're the, so my bad, you're the exception, right? But like a lot of people like, cool, if you're on ZSA, just like, oh, well, what's in your ZSHRC, right? Like how have you customized it? And you, you see something that someone else has done that's cool, like, oh, I want that. And like PSQL by itself is, you know, it's a fine editor, but the, the biggest thing I can recommend is setting up like a PSQL RC that is same as like a ZSHRC or a bash RC where it, it customizes what you have. And so like by default, you can do like backslash timing and that shows how long every query you run in the editor took to run, right? Like, okay. oh, was that one second or a hundred milliseconds? Backslash X auto, auto formats the output of the query based on the width of your screen. So if you have like a really like, like 10 columns, right? That would kind of weirdly wrap. What it's going to do is put the column on the left and the content on the right. Okay. And so one record is going to be vertical, like, you know, like really readable based on the width of the query. It's not going to be like, oh, it's always this way. It's like, this is based on the columns and how many uh, columns we can output in your the width of your terminal. Really like nice auto formatting right out of the box. Yeah, I think of like pretty print uh, in a way, kind of what it was showing, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, if you set up your default like environment variable editor, if you do backslash E, it'll open up that editor. So like my, you know, a lot of default in is like Vim, right? Or VI by default, if you don't customize anything in a, a terminal window, but you could set it up to be like VS code or like sublime text or, or whatever. And that'll actually open up the last query you edited there in your default editor. Nice. And so you edit it like in VS code, save it, close it. It'll auto run that query back in that, command line editor that you're in. So pop open VS code, save the query, close it, and it automatically runs it. So it's like, wait, I don't have to edit SQL in this like CLI weird interface. Like, no, but you can kind of go back and forth really seamlessly. So I'd, I'd encourage, hey, if you want that good experience, spend just a couple minutes with PSQL, look at setting up a PSQL RC, go and do what everyone does for, you know, their CSH shell. Just st steal someone else's, right? Like, search sure. on GitHub, search for a blog post, and, oh, I like this piece, I like that piece. You can, if you find, you know, as a Python developer, you're like, man, I like this database thing, and I want to do more of it, and I want to spend more time, and I I like being my company's expert on, like, Postgres performance, and we've got 23 Postgres databases. You can save queries via a name in your PSQL RC, and, like, Oh, what's the cache hit? Or like we talked about PG stat statements. Like there's a couple of ways to query it. Well, you don't need to write that query fresh every time. You can actually save that in your PSQL RC and be like, uh, you know, PG stat performance. And that'll auto run this query that you've created that is like your preferred view of it. So you have a YouTube video where you were kind of showing off some of the stuff and writing queries. Um, I'll include a link to that. I think it was for um, Pi Caribbean. It's a little while ago, so maybe some of the stuff might be out of date, but you're at least showing off some of those functionalities uh, at the beginning and showing, I think, some of the PSQL RC stuff that you've done. Are, are there other resources? I can always include them in the show notes. Yeah, I can definitely. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll pull up a few blog posts. I, I joke that I blog because I'm lazy because it's, you know, 
once I explain this once, it's how can I just, you know, not explain it again, right? Sure. So it's, um, there's, there's definitely a number of blog posts where it's, here's one view on it and here's another. So yeah, I can definitely provide like a number of blog posts, right? Like I think, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll probably talk about this at the end, but like, hey, if this is interesting to you, like subscribe to Postgres Weekly, right? Like um, subscribe to the Crunchy Data newsletter. Like we try to, our blog is, we try to push a lot of this on the blog, right? Where if someone finds something interesting, it's like, oh, here's this cool small tidbit of how to write better SQL, right? And on the Crunchy blog, really focused actually not on like DBAs, but on app developers. So it's like, all right, you don't have to be scared of your database. You don't have to be an expert in like, query optimization to come in and like learn a little bit about Postgres and appreciate it and get a little bit better at it. Yeah. I wonder like, you know, I think maybe people think they might be getting trapped in a, in a hole of like, I'm only going to just focus on database stuff if I, if that's what I, you know, start digging into. And it's like, hopefully you aren't spending that much time there. You can kind of just look at it when you need to worry about, you know, maybe your performance or other things. Yeah. I think that's, that's really like, you know, as someone who's worked with databases a lot, like a lot of the day isn't dealing with databases, right? It's all the other things around it. And I think most applications don't need a hundred percent kind of dedicated DBA, right? Like once, um, especially, you know, again, if you're outsourcing the, the backups and management and maintenance to like a managed service, hey, it's a, a once a month health check, right? Or every three months, like here's the things that just every so often you come in and, and tune and tweak. And, you know, as a developer, it's refreshing to change pace right like to learn something new and kind of get a different perspective yeah yeah and you know we talk about it all the time that uh, most of the developers that i speak to on the show very often are very interested in just like learning other other languages and what they can kind of steal from there and i, I think sql is a great one to to add to that you know just to kind of understand some of the stuff that's happening underneath the hood and uh and you know going into the something like psql and being able to just like look at stuff directly and query it directly and i think you mentioned the one thing that my wife was who kind of got me into sql and she was writing queries at a bank and we both have this experience that i think you mentioned in one of your talks also where someone has come up to you and said hey i need to find this information and you write like a little query for them right at that moment and then they come back again like four months later and you're like Ah, I wish I had that ready to go. That's one of the things that the you you can have also it can save like the history of other queries you've done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In your PSQL RC, you can basically based on the database name that you're connecting to, save your entire history of a query. It's it's super handy. Now it's you know the caveat: well, you're saving the history. Do you want to save the history, right? Oh uh, yeah. Like if, if 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 you're you know if it's for some reason the query in schema is sensitive, make sure you're not doing that. But for so many, yeah, it's, man, marketing every, every you know, <laughs> few months would be like, hey, we need a dashboard of active users. And I'm like, well, how did, how do we compute active users? I'm like, I don't know. You wrote the query. I'm like, but I didn't, like, this isn't my job. I'm, I bailed you out, right? So um, <laughs> yeah. super, super handy to, like, save your history of that sort of stuff. I mean, I, I do find, you know, on the counter to that, it sounds like, man, you're just volunteering for work and helping someone else out, right? I have found that knowing SQL feels like as an app developer, if you know SQL, you feel like a like it's a superpower. People are like, oh my goodness, how did you write that SQL query to do that thing when it would have taken me like to, you know, 
like as a Python developer, it's easy to go and like, well, give me all the data and I can manipulate it in Python, no problem. And it's like, but right, it's yeah. it's a one terabyte database. I can't pull all that in memory and parse that. And like SQL is a superpower and you'll seem like this mythical, like two level up developer from where you are if you embrace it kind of early on. And you'll find expert, super principal engineers that don't know SQL and are scared and intimidated by it. So it's one of those things, I think, as a as an early on developer, if you embrace it, it's kind of a le- way to level up a little bit in your career. Yeah, yeah. You know, definitely for people in data science, it's kind of the same way where I feel like a lot of people come at it from a different angle. And, and like you said, that they spend so much time with just this mass amount of raw data and then they're just paring it down and paring it down to what they actually need. And they could have done done a query to kind of hopefully done most of that and renamed things and made it all pretty <laughs> beforehand. But yeah. One of the things that you mentioned in one of your talks that I thought was interesting is that you said Python is your world when it's not Postgres. Um, what do you mean by that? I am, I'm an okay developer. Like these days I don't write code for production. Python, I guess, well, I got started as a developer probably at like age 10. Okay. And, um, and it was always been interesting to me, but like it was kind of like the means to an end, right? Like I've worked at technology companies, um, but it's like code is there to kind of build interesting stuff and solve a problem, right? So these days I'm more on the product management side of things. And I, I usually joke with engineers of like, you know, when something's going slow and I'm like, hey, when's this ready to go to production? They're like, you know, I get the, the uh, curmudgeonly engineer, like it'll be ready when I'm done, when it's ready. I'm like, oh, don't worry. I'm sure I can kind of, you know, whip up a PR and push it to production. And they'll be like, no, 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 Craig, please don't touch production. It will be done by tomorrow, I promise. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I came to to Python and really via way of Django. Man, it was like Django 092. Okay. Maybe, maybe before then. And it's, I mean, I write, you know, I think explicit is better than implicit, right? Like I write, basic, clear, clean Python code, same as I write SQL. So it's funny that like, you know, a lot of people are like, man, SQL can be really cryptic and confusing. I'm like, actually, I just write it the same way, right? Like logical, broken out steps, well-documented, well-commented. I I guess I was more of a Django developer for a, for a long time and kind of got more chops on, on Python. So it's now, you know, my day-to-day is, all right, I need a script to do this, or I need to kind of munch some data together in this way or that way, and Python's really good for it. But I always kind of loved the the Django world, the ecosystem. Yeah, I don't think they have it on the ta- the the website anymore. But the the batteries included framework, if you remember that when that was their tagline, and it was right there on the website, and I loved it because you didn't, you know, session management, middleware, like an admin screen, like what other framework shipped with like an admin? Yeah, like none that I know of, right? And it's and you always need one. You always want it and. It's funny, I like to me, Postgres is the batteries included database. Like, yeah, it's got it's got full text search, it's got geospatial. For so for me, like I have always appreciated that approach and philosophy, and that's kind of what pulled me into the Python world. When I joined Heroku, I joined to actually launch their Python support. So like I've I've got I've had friends for decades now um, in the Python world. It's a great community. It's a great ecosystem that has kept me around. I, I've got you know friends in the Ruby world because of working at Heroku. They were so deep in that world. Yeah, but I've always just kind of appreciated the community, the thoughtfulness, and that design approach. You know, of, of just kind of ideals within the Python world. So, if someone wanted to 
maybe we could talk about some resources for people to kind of learn a little more generally about Postgres or to play around with it. What kind of advice or resources do you have for that? Yeah, so I think I mentioned a few, right, that we can link to, you know, things like Postgres Weekly, which is a, a weekly newsletter, you know, the, the Crunchy Data blog where I work, um, I think is, is a great resource. One thing that we actually shipped at Crunchy Data, I have to think of when now, it may have been a year or so now, we actually took Postgres and embedded it in your web browser via Wasm. And so oh, cool. uh, what we what we built was what we call the Postgres Playground, where you can live, like, load up a website and there's, I'll, I'll have to check how many, I want to say there's about 30 like guided tutorials now where like we'll load up data, a schema, and then like side by side, it's like here, like partition this table, now insert this data, now do this, that it's it's not connected to a remote VM somewhere, it's literally running in your web browser. We've got a little bit of an Easter egg where you can basically pass in a question mark uh, I gotta check. I think it's data equals, and then link to like a SQL file, and it'll automatically load that up. So if you wanted to, like, as a company, create like your own tutorials where it's like, oh, we're gonna load our company schema and like dummy data for us to like train someone on that, you can do that. So like, take a look at our, our Crunchy Data like Postgres Playground. Okay. You want to go try something? Like, yeah, just checking. It's about thirty tutorials. We've got some of the. I think about 20 of the advent of code, if you've done that before, like directly in SQL. So like some of, there's some crazy advents of code done with SQL there that I don't know that I could pull off myself. One of our, our engineers <laughs> pulled those off. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, really, truly mind-blowing pieces. But then like not to intimidate, like there's the like, how do you use data types, right? And how do you, you know... um understand json and like i think almost everything we've talked about right like yeah post gis p sql actually it has like sample commands for p sql like there on like how to like format the output or this that it's running because it is p sql that you're connected to right there in your web browser connected to the database running in your web browser so definitely check out our postgres playground if you want to level up your skills a little bit and then you know some of those newsletters and, and blogs are, are a great resource awesome I like to ask everybody these kind of weekly questions. And the first one is, what's something that you're excited about in the world of Python? Personally, I think just events kind of, I, you know, depending on your, your worldview, I don't know that the world's back to, to normal, but PyCon's feeling more and more normal. I guess we've had two of them now. And it, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's nice to get back out there and, and see folks, right? I live in the Bay Area, which is a, definitely a kind of a, a tech hub, right? But there's so many like, python folks out here that i i know and we live far from each other like close to each other but we don't see like we see each other at python every year like that's when we for whatever reason <laughs> we're like, we're like every year we're like yeah we should get together more like we have like 20 of us that live here in the bay area and we should go and have drinks and like that sounds like a great idea and it's like all right well, we'll see you next year at python like it's just kind of what happens so <laughs> yeah really excited for kind of like you know the and a lot of the regional ones too like i love some of the you know pi tennessee's been an amazing conference pi texas I, I missed DjangoCon Europe last year. I'm really pulling that I make it to it this like DjangoCon Europe. I absolutely love. So personally, for a lot of the events and the kind of people piece of it to kind of start to pick back up in the world. Yeah, yeah. It's been really fun kind of documenting that and talking to people and organizers for all the conferences kind of while they were being virtual and now them reopening back up and, and uh, doing in-person stuff. It's been really fun to watch. And it's such a, 
a weird set of seasons that happen this sort of conference season. So are there any ones that you're headed to this year? Figuring out my schedule a little bit, I think, you know, we've got one person that's speaking, I think, at, at DjangoCon, and I think one person that's speaking at DjangoCon Europe. So I'm I'm trying to make both of those. I doubt I make both. I'll probably be at one. You know, I was at PyCon earlier in the year. I'll be at PyCon next year, um, I'm pretty sure. So that's kind of the current schedule. I, I, I don't know of any regional ones that I'm making it to right now, but I'll, you know, We'll, we'll probably get off this podcast and hang up and I'll probably, you know, go search and see which <laughs> ones I can maybe make that weren't in my schedule already. Yeah, yeah. So what's something that you want to learn next? This doesn't have to be about Python or programming, but just something you want to learn. Yeah, I don't know how much it's it's next. Um, like, I, you know, uh, have kind of gotten into wok cooking lately, um, like the, the Kenji book. It's like, man, there's a lot of ingredients and it seems intimidating, but like making your own like beef with broccoli, it's like, man, it's such a good leftover meal that I've definitely like leaned in of like <laughs> to the wok cooking of stuff that I never thought I would actually do at home. Like, man, there's 23 ingredients for this thing. Or like, why would I make my own like tempura at home? And yet it's like actually leaning into it. It's not so intimidating. So I, you know, it's kind of mid process, right? But I've definitely been kind of enjoying that a little definitely more than i expected because it seemed intimidating right yeah are, what are you using uh an electric wok or are you using something over a stovetop or uh over a stovetop over a, a, a gas range it's a uh, i mean nothing fancy on the wok it's like i think oh cool it's funny when i researched this like there's you know there's fancy ones but it's like actually you know like basic 30 40 dollars ones and season them well yeah and it's you know, the, the Kenji book, if you're at all interested in it, um, I think it's called Walk, but like, it's a really great cookbook for if you have any desire to get into that. And I, I definitely like love it because I can focus on it for the weekend. And then like, man, I've got like leftover pods you and like uh, <laughs> beef with broccoli and all the things that like, he, like reheat so well that I eat well during the week without a ton of work. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's something that people neglect as we work from home having good meals <laughs> that can go through uh, last a week or something. Yeah. One of the, the kind of funniest things about it is in his book, he even calls out like various types of chicken, like orange chicken or sesame chicken. He's like, so I didn't believe this or my friend did this, or I forget whether it was him or his friend. And then he ended up trying it. I was like, actually Popeye's chicken, just like chicken nuggets, like refried, like re saute them and add the sauce actually come out as about as well as doing your own completely fried chicken from scratch, like good and crispy, just refry this already fried chicken, which is like, that feels like cheating, but it's totally, I like definitely like went to Popeye's, <laughs> got the chicken nuggets, refried them, made the sauce. And it's like, yeah, I'm not going to make my own like chicken nuggets for like, you know, sesame chicken or orange chicken. Yeah. That's so much more work that like on this one, I'm totally taking the shortcut every time. Yeah, 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 totally. Deep frying is uh, a lot of uh, ingredients that are not used are going to be, you know, taken care of when you're done. So, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. How can people follow what you do online? What? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I uh, I blog some on my personal blog at, at craigfirstings.com. I'm pretty much craigfirstings everywhere. You know, if you have questions, don't be shy. Email me. Like, I truly, like, I'm happy to have emails from from random folks if you have a question or feedback or anything. I blog a lot on the Crunchy Data blog where I work and run product engineering. So like, you know, definitely appreciate you subscribing to that newsletter and following there. I am on, I'm not on Mastodon currently. I am on Twitter and I'm on Blue Sky. Craig Kirstein's there. So we'll 
see on the future of Twitter and all that. But for now, still there hanging out until it completely implodes. So yeah, generally search for Craig and Postgres and I'm a, I'm a pretty easy person to track down. Great. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fun to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I've gotten it out so I can, you know, not talk about data types tonight on the, the date with my, my wife and that'll probably keep me out of the doghouse a little bit longer. So it's, uh, you know, thanks for letting me get the enthusiasm of, I, I don't know, is Postgres a sexy database? I Maybe <laughs> listeners can chime in, right? Can a database be be sexy? And if so, is does Postgres, you know, win that badge? I, I It's weird of me to say it. Like for some reason, I don't think a database can be, but it's definitely been fun to drill into for a little bit. Yeah. Great. Thanks. I want to thank Craig Kirsteins for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.